All right. So tonight I want to focus on a subject that you likely don't know much about. It is very rarely taught on in the Easter setting because it's a heavy subject and there isn't a lot of um, there's a lot of books written about it. It's a bit obscure. To me, it's the most miss uh, uh, the most overlooked part of the Easter story, and it's a very very significant part of the Easter story. I'm going to talk to you tonight about the trial of Jesus. If it is too cold, I feel a bit of a chill. Uh, maybe Janet, if you see Nicola, the fellow out there, can he raise the heat a little bit? Because I think people are a bit chilly. All right, if you see him, at least the air conditioning is working. Okay, I'm going to talk to you about this idea of the trial of Jesus. Now, here's the idea: we in church circles, we say, you know, God loves us, and we talk about the love of God, and we have bumper stickers that say God loves us, and you know, John three sixteen. Uh, I remember uh, one time I was crossing the border into the U.S. Uh, this was before the days of the current president. That's just a joke, okay? But I was crossing the border going into the U.S., and um, uh, the, the border guard there uh, questioned me because of the condition of my vehicle. And the front of the vehicle had this dent above the headlight. And uh, what I did, being the cheapskate that I am, is rather than fix the dent, I covered the dent in Vaseline. I don't know if any of you ever tried this trick before. But when you do that, what happens is it won't rust because the Vaseline creates this barrier, you see. And so that way you don't have to fix it. You don't have to prime it. You don't have to paint it. You just, you know, cover it with this, this Vaseline. The problem is that it almost immediately gets the dust from the air stuck to it and it becomes black. So there's this weird black patch on the front of my, my hood above the headlight. It looks very strange. And so the, the border guard starts to question me, and he says, Is this your car, sir? And I said, well, of course it's my car, you know. And he says, well, uh, prime me with all these questions. He says, well, what do you do for a living? I said, well, I'm a minister. He said, really? What's John 3.16 say? I said, well, for God so loved the world that he gave us a one and only son. He goes, oh, go ahead. We, we talk about the love of God and we talk about how, you know, God loves us. And we, we've almost become, I think, inoculated to that idea and numb to that idea. And we sometimes need to remind ourselves of this and have a, more of a conviction about the idea of the love of God rather than this kind of chant that we do in church settings over and over again. So I want to demonstrate this to you through looking at the trial of Jesus. Uh, the Bible says in Romans chapter 5 verse 8 that, that very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, but God demonstrates his love for us in this, while we were yet sinners... Christ died for us. Well, what did he go through in order to demonstrate his love for us? Maybe you're in the, the seat tonight and you say, well, I'm not convinced that God loves me. I'm not even convinced that God exists tonight. And, you know, you hear about all these things about God's love and all of this. Let me try and put the love of God on trial tonight through looking at the trial of Jesus. And I want to put two questions for you. 
Um, Number one, what was the crime that Jesus of Nazareth was convicted of that sent him to the cross? What was he guilty of that had him executed with the death penalty? And number two, who is ultimately responsible for the death of Jesus of Nazareth? Now, I'm going to use language and terminology that's going to sound a bit like legalese tonight. So that's why we have coffee and tea. I don't want you to sleep. You know, you can get up and go and get your coffee and get your tea anytime you want. But I'm going to use a bit of legalese, and I want to try and put you in the shoes of Jesus as he was put on trial. Um, how many of you have ever been in a courtroom before? Okay, how many of you enjoyed the experience? No, I see some people shaking their heads, okay? It's a very, very high-stress thing to be in a courtroom. I have never been in a courtroom before, but I've come close a number of times. Uh, I've had the privilege of being involved in some rather unusual and rather bizarre cases in the life of the church, uh, in church circles and in church contexts, where those kinds of thi- those kinds of things were being threatened, if I may say. And when it comes down to that, it's all about process and procedure and all these details and all this nitty gritty stuff. And for whatever odd reason, I've been exposed to these kinds of things over the years. Uh, I've sat down with lawyers on many occasions. I've spent hundreds of hours with lawyers, believe it or not, having to do with situations in church cultures and contexts, more than one church actually. Uh, I've consulted with a couple of churches on these kinds of things. This May, uh, I'll be uh, on the parliamentary committee for the district conference. That's where you have process and procedure when they're doing their I've written bylaws and constitutions and policies, all the boring stuff. But let me tell you, when you're in a courtroom, those are the things that matter. And those little details can send someone to jail or get them out. So I'm going to use some language with respect to the trial of Jesus. It's going to be a little odd. And the things that you're going to learn tonight are not really things that you've heard before. And they're not things that you'll find in the scripture per se. And I'll explain why in a minute. Uh, Cornelius Tacitus, a Roman historian, writing uh, in the first century, has this to say about Jesus. But not all the relief that could come from man, not all the bounties that the prince could bestow, nor all the atonements which could be presented to the gods, availed to relieve Nero, this is Emperor Nero, from the infamy of being believed to have ordered the conflagration, the fire, of Rome. There's a very, very famous fire uh, in the, the city of Rome back in the first century, and Nero apparently set this fire. Hence, to suppress the rumor, he falsely charged with guilt and punished Christians who were hated for their enormities. This Roman historian tells us Christus, the founder of the name, was put to death by Pontius Pilate procurator of Judea in the reign of Tiberius, but the pernicious superstition repressed for a time broke out again, not only through Judea where the mischief originated, but through the city of Rome also. 
where all things hideous and shameful from every part of the world find their center and become popular. Accordingly, an arrest was made of all who pleaded guilty. Then upon their information, an immense multitude was convicted, not so much of the crime of firing the city as of hatred against mankind. This is a non-Christian historian writing about this fire that went off, went off in Rome, how Nero blamed this class of people called Christians, and he mentions Jesus, who was put to death by Pontius Pilate. Doesn't say what his crime was. Doesn't say what he was found guilty of, but they instituted the death penalty for Jesus of Nazareth. The question is, why? There are a couple of very, very good books that were written in the 20th century about this. One of them is called The Trial of Jesus by Walter Chandler. And the other is The Life of Christ in Stereo by a guy named Johnston Cheney. Uh, Chandler, in his book, he has thoroughly researched uh, a couple of big bodies of literature, the Talmud and the Mishnah. These are commentaries on the Hebrew Old Testament, and they contain um, a number of references to the laws of the land at that time. And they, these guys have uh, compiled this and have noted uh, these things with regard to the trial of Jesus, all right? So, so stay with me for a few minutes. With regard to the, the events of the trial and execution of Jesus of Nazareth, these things should never have taken place. The trial and the execution of Jesus by natural law and jurisprudence never should have happened. It is ridiculous if you know the laws at that time that Jesus ever even got to the point of the cross. Ridiculous. Let me give you a number of reasons why. It was illegal to perform an arrest at night by a traitor, an informant, Judas uh, Iscariot, with no intent to conduct a legal trial for the purpose of reaching a righteous judgment. All of that was illegal according to the Mishnah, according to the Talmud. It should not have been done in that way. Yet Matthew and Mark and Luke in the New Testament tell us what the chief priests, the elders and the officers of the temple guard and the high priest himself plotted to arrest Jesus in some sly way to kill him without disturbing the feast of the Passover. Matthew and Mark and Luke, they tell us that Jesus was arrested very late on what we would traditionally call Thursday night before Good Friday. It was very late at night. We know this because Peter and James and John got caught by Jesus sleeping three times. I hope you don't fall asleep tonight in the message, but, you know, if you get caught, it's not going to it's not going to be a big deal. Uh, the key figure in the arrest was an informant, Judas Iscariot, and he received 30 pieces of silver from the chief priests and the officers of the temple in exchange for betraying Jesus and directing this crowd to his location in the Garden of Gethsemane. Never should have happened. It was illegal to examine the prisoner at night by a judge or a magistrate sitting alone and in private. And yet we're told that Jesus, if you look at the whole 
gospel record, there's really six trials that Jesus went through. He, he first went in private to Annas and then to the high priest himself, Caiaphas, and then to the Sanhedrin, which is like a group of ruling uh, 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 judges. We know Nicodemus was one of them. We know uh, he was part of the Sanhedrin. Uh, we know that Joseph of Arimathea was part of the Sanhedrin. Uh, then he went to Pontius Pilate, then to Herod Antipas, and then back to Pontius Pilate, and then he's executed. We have from the Gospel of John these separate kind of private examinations by Annas and his son-in-law Caiaphas, whose bones we have now found as we looked at a few weeks ago. And this was all held at night, illegal, never should have happened according to the Talmud and the Mishnah. It was illegal to accuse the prisoner vaguely, assisted by the high priest with no real witness, Yet Matthew and Mark record the indictment in front of the Sanhedrin where these false witnesses were told come forward and their testimony wouldn't agree. Uh, they tried, but uh, apparently it wouldn't agree. Finally, two of them come forward and they've got uh, this idea of sorcery that Jesus was some sort of magician and some sort of a sorcerer based on a misunderstanding of something that Jesus had originally said. In John chapter 2, Jesus says, destroy this temple and I will rebuild it in three days. And they say in this, in this mock trial, they say that Jesus said, I will destroy this man-made temple and in three days will rebuild it with another not made by man. So they said he's trying to destroy the temple in Jerusalem. He's a sorcerer. He claims he's going to destroy it and bring it back to life somehow. And yet we're told in John that Jesus was talking about himself and talking about his own physical body. And then Caiaphas, the high priest, he invokes what is called the oath of the testimony. And he says, I adjure you by the living God. You tell us if you are the son of God or not. And he charges Jesus with blasphemy. There's no defense at all. Jesus has no lawyer. Nobody's there to defend him at all. This is illegal. There's no real witness. Uh, the, the high priest is assisting. Never should have happened. This is not the proper jurisprudence. It's illegal for the Sanhedrin to assemble at night. Yet Matthew and Mark clearly uh, show that the assembly took place very late at night. You've got the Sanhedrin together meeting in the house of Joseph Caiaphas. It was illegal for the Sanhedrin to convene with two indictments before the offering of the morning sacrifice. In Hebrew law, uh, the, the worship was very closely related to the law, and you couldn't do those kinds of things without doing the morning sacrifice. The indictments that were made should have been made later on in the day, the next day. And yet we're told by Matthew and Mark that we've got two indictments of sorcery and of blasphemy claiming to be the Son of God made very late at night. Nobody so far is raising their hand in all of these proceedings and saying, excuse me, but this never should be happening. This should not be happening. We need to call this off. This is a mock trial. This is ridiculous. Why is it that in the Gospels, nobody says it shouldn't be happening? I remember being one time in a very, very hot, on fire church business meeting. Most church business, meeting are, business meetings are super boring. 
But I remember being in one that was as hot as a frying pan. And I remember working with the senior pastor of that church at the time. And we had to prepare ourselves for this showdown at the OK Corral in this church business meeting. And the, we knew who the individual was who was going to pull out his gun, so to speak, and do this showdown at the OK Corral. And we had it all planned. And we said, well, when he says this, you say this. And when he says that, you say that. It was a showdown waiting to happen. And what the individual did was he raised what's called a point of order. In a, in a business meeting, in any kind of structure, somebody can raise their hand and say, excuse me, point of order, Mr. Chairman. Something in the yonder business meeting is not being done correctly. The point of order, there's something wrong here. And sure enough, this fellow raised his hand and he said, point of order, Mr. Chairman. And the fireworks began. I won't tell you the outcome. It was rather hideous. But in the case of Jesus, nobody is raising a point of order. Nobody is saying, excuse me, all these laws that we have are all being broken. Why is it that nobody is saying something? It's as if there's an invisible hand that's pushing this thing forward. Because if you know the laws of the time, you're scratching your head saying, is this made up? Like, why is nobody stopping this from happening? It was illegal for the proceedings to be conducted on the day before the Sabbath, on the first day of the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. That's the Passover in the Jewish calendar on the eve of the Passover and for them to be concluded within one day. No Hebrew court could meet on a Sabbath or a feast day or a day preceding a Sabbath or a feast day. Impossible. I have, I have Orthodox Jewish relatives and believe me, they know this. They know that this would be the case even today. Even if we treat the morning appearance that we'll see in a second before the Sanhedrin as a separate trial, the conclusions were made too quickly in the span of one day. It's illegal. Shouldn't have been done. It's illegal for the sentence of condemnation to be founded on Jesus's uncorroborated confession. So nobody's corroborating it. Matthew and Mark record the charge of blasphemy. He claims to be the son of God, asking Jesus, uh, is he the Christ? And Jesus at first remains silent. And then that high priest invokes the oath. And he says to him, I charge you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Messiah, the son of God. You have said so. Jesus replied, but I say to all of you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. This is a direct reference to Daniel chapter 7 in the Old Testament. This is a messianic passage where you have this kind of superhero Messiah coming on the clouds of heaven and immediately they recognize this is blasphemy. He's claiming to be the Messiah. The high priest tears his clothes and he says he has spoken blasphemy. Why do we need any more witnesses? Well, you're supposed to, Mr. High Priest. Look now, you have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? He's worthy of death, they answered. And then they spit in his face and struck him with their fists. And others slapped him and said, prophesy to us, Messiah, who hit you? 
No corroboration of the confession is made. They just say he's confessed. Let's have him executed. It was illegal for the Sanhedrin's verdict to even be unanimous. Back in that day, you had to have somebody who was part of the loyal opposition. Somebody had to say there had to be a naysayer in the group. If everybody was united in the verdict, it was suspicious. They would suspect foul play. And yet in this case, everybody is finding him guilty. Not one of the members of the Sanhedrin, not Joseph of Arimathea, if he's even there, not Nicodemus, if he's even there. We meet these gentlemen later when Jesus is buried. None of them are saying anything. They all find him guilty. And the verdict was therefore not valid under their own laws and yet they're pushing this thing through not one person in the three trials so far steps up to defend him or even state that the proceedings are all messed up or even say excuse me point of order mr chairman no everyone is strangely silent the skeptics say that the whole thing couldn't have happened they say this is all a concoction. It never, it, nobody who knows anything about Hebrew law would, would write such a silly story because there's all these illegalities. I would submit to you that all of those illegalities are the reason why the thing happened. That, that who would write down such a nonsensical story and, and go to their graves for it back at that time? The thing is so bizarre that it must have happened. There's so many discrepancies, so many illegalities, so many problems with this trial. All a big, a big, big mess. It was illegal. It was illegal for so many things. The sentence uh, of the prisoner was, was um, it was an, they wanted him executed, and they did this outside the Hall of Hewn Stones, as it was called. This is a place in the temple in Jerusalem, like an apartment in the temple. The high priest tears his garments. There's not proper balloting for this. There's supposed to be balloting, and ballots are supposed to be handed in. This is a case that was done in the, in the fellow's house. In the house of the high priest, it's illegal. Supposed to be done in the hall of hewn stones in the temple. It is a capital trial. They want to put this man to death and they're not doing it correctly. It's illegal for the high priest to tear his garment because these were made after the express orders of God. As per Leviticus in the Old Testament, there was no balloting. The conclusion of the trial before the Sanhedrin is send him over to Pontius Pilate now so that we can get a public execution. The Jews did not have the death penalty publicly in that day. If they wanted to stone someone, they would do so illegally. They wanted Jesus sentenced to death publicly so that they could stop this, this, this mess of people following him so that they wouldn't have an uproar at the Passover where you've got tens of thousands of people journeying to Jerusalem for this very, very important uh, uh, feast. And so they say, send him to Pilate. And they go to Pilate, and yet they've got different indictments than what they found him guilty of. They said he's a sorcerer. They said he's a blasphemer. And yet when they go to Pilate, they say he's, he's a political, uh, he's, he's subversive politically. He's leading the people astray. He refuses to pay taxes, and he claims to be a king. These are what they go to Pilate with. Now, I mean, political subversion... Um, not paying your taxes, these are not capital crimes. They weren't back then, and they aren't today. I hope you pay your taxes to the CRA. You know, you have 15 more days to file. 
But if you don't, you're, you're likely not going to face the death penalty, especially in Canada. Uh, yet, the, the final one would have raised Pilate's eyebrows. He claims to be a king. Uh, maybe this is treason. Maybe this is treason against Pilate's boss, Tiberius Caesar, and Pilate is not going to ignore this one. And so what does he do? He privately examines Jesus after they bring him, uh, bring Jesus to Pontius Pilate. But he does so very carefully and seemingly out of character. Now, you have to know a few things about Pontius Pilate that are not written in the Gospels. They're very, very important. We know this from Josephus and from Philo, ancient historians of the day. Pontius Pilate was a, a very uh, vicious kind of leader from what we know of him. We see a trace of this in Luke chapter 13. It talks about how he, how he mixed the blood of people with their sacrifices. Very violent passage in Luke chapter 13. But we know some things from him, from these two historians, if they're accurate. And most people think that they are. And there's three of them. Uh, the first of Pilate's problems had to do with how he was managing these people. Now, back in that day, uh, when Herod the Great died, uh, around the time when Jesus was born, um, his, his areas of leadership were divided between his sons. And one of his sons was named Herod Archelaus. And Archelaus was found to be a kind of an incompetent leader. And so the Romans had to step in there, and they had to put these procurators into this area of Galilee um, to, to kind of oversee uh, what was going on. I'm sorry, uh, Judea, uh, to oversee what was going on there because they found that Archelaus was incompetent. And Pilate was the sixth of these procurators to go into the area of Judea. And he had to handle the Jewish people with sensitivity because they did not like these idols and these pictures of the emperor and all of these things. And Pilate was horrible at this. The people who succeeded him were good at it. And Pilate almost seemingly wants to annoy the Jewish people more than anything else. Uh, uh, the first thing that happened was that the uh, uh, Pilate deliberately had the flags, the Roman standards, paraded through Jerusalem with Tiberius's image on them. It, the people who succeeded him wouldn't dare to such a maneuver, but Pilate did it, and the Jews were outraged. They didn't want to see this image of this of this uh, Caesar as if he's God, and they're outraged at this, and the thing ends in a violent confrontation at a race course in Caesarea and the the Jewish people are demanding that he never does that and he takes those things away and he says no I'm going to wipe you out if you keep bothering me and they say you know what we're going to lay our necks bare we'd rather be killed than have to submit to this and have you parade around these Roman flags with the image of this person as if he's a god and there's a bad confrontation there, and uh, Pilate backed away from it. And he, he, he put the standards away, the Roman uh, flags, and he, he kind of backed off a little bit. That was the first thing. And then he decided to use the sacred temple money, the treasury money, it was called Korban, and he decided to use it to build an aqueduct 
to bring water, more water, into the city of Jerusalem. Sounds like a good idea. But he used the money from the sacred treasury. Again, the Korban money. And the Jewish people did not like this at all. And there was another confrontation between them and Pontius Pilate, a public confrontation. And Pilate was very upset. And so he dresses up some of his soldiers in in common uh, clothes, like the Jews themselves. He gives a signal to his people, and they slaughter dozens and dozens of Jewish people in in this public confrontation. Very, very violent. And then there's a third problem with Pilate and his leadership. And he, again, uh, he's in Herod's palace. And he he deliberately puts these little little Roman kind of shields or flags on on a desk uh, publicly there. And this gets uh, Herod Antipas, who we'll see in a minute, very, very upset once again. And he writes a letter to Pilate's boss, Tiberius Caesar. And we're told that about six months before the Easter event, Pilate gets a letter from his boss, Tiberius Caesar. Apparently, it's written in very nasty Latin. It's got some vulgarities in it. And it says to Pontius Pilate, if you ever incite these people again and cause another uproar, you will have outlived your usefulness in Judea. Do I make myself clear? And so Pilate was under pressure because of his political blunders, one after the other after the other. And he's examining Jesus, and Jesus is talking about this kingdom. And he realizes, Pilate, that this thing is no threat to Caesar. It's some sort of religious kingdom. Uh, He asks Pilate, uh, uh, or Pilate asks him, what is truth? You know, these are theological things to Pilate. These are spiritual things to Pilate. They're not going to hurt his boss, if you're staying with me so far. And so Pilate finds out that Jesus is from Galilee. And Galilee is where one of the Herods are. Herod Antipas is there, and he's ruling in Galilee. He's the man responsible for the execution of John the Baptist. He had him beheaded. And so what he does in a brilliant political maneuver is he says, let me send Jesus over to Herod Antipas. Antipas does not like me. He's written a letter to my boss. So let me send Jesus over to him. Maybe he'll deal with Jesus and maybe he'll deal with Jesus the same way he dealt with his with his cousin, John the Baptist. And then he'll be off of my plate. Antipas will like me. Maybe he'll write a nice letter to my boss and he'll he'll kill two birds with one stone, as it were. And so he sends him over to Herod Antipas to deal with for what really is trial number five. And so Herod wants to see Jesus perform a miracle. And uh, Jesus does nothing of the kind. It's like he wants him to do a magic trick. And he, he questions Jesus and he plies him with many questions, as Scripture says. But Jesus says nothing. Even with the chief priests and the teachers of the law vehemently accusing him, the Scripture says, Jesus says nothing. And so Herod is frustrated with this. He doesn't want to get involved in this. He dresses up Jesus in an elegant robe and he mocks him and he sends him back to Pontius Pilate and he, without an indictment. For, uh, and then he goes to trial number six, now in front of Pontius Pilate. And now Pilate is stuck between a rock and a hard place. Again, if you understand the politics of what's going on here, he's stuck 
And he doesn't see any grounds to execute Jesus. So he tries another legal option. We see it happen today, even in the modern world. He tries the presidential pardon. And he has on one side Jesus of Nazareth. On the other side, he's got Barabbas, a criminal. And so the custom we're told back in the day in the Gospels is that at Passover, they would pardon a criminal. The modern presidents in the United States do the exact same thing. I think former President Obama holds the record for the amount of criminals that he's pardoned and gotten off of their their sentence and so forth. And so Pilate is going to try this, do the presidential pardon, and see if we can get Jesus off the hook here because he's feeling quite a bit of pressure. This does not work. The chief priests stir up the crowd, which may have largely been composed of of a rigged crowd, and they say, release to us. Barabbas, the fellow on the right hand of the screen there, instead of Jesus. And on top of that, they're calling for Jesus to be crucified. Crucify him, put him to death. And so Pilate, again, trying to get out of this mess, tries another option at his disposal in a kind of a cowardly fashion. And he has Jesus scourged, rather brutally, most probably scourged. Because we're told that Jesus only took six hours to die on the cross. If you look at the Gospels, it's about six hours. Uh, that's pretty short. It would mean that he, he likely would have been beaten very, very badly before he even made it to the cross. We have records of victims dying for days and days. It would took them sometimes two, three days to die. And so uh, he, he has Jesus scourged uh, very violently. And the, the soldiers appear to be uh, particularly cruel to Jesus. They drive a crown of thorns into his head and they beat him in the face and they mock him. And Pilate brings him out in a purple robe and he says, behold, the man, here he is. And they're hoping, he's hoping that they'll let him go and they'll, you know, we've punished him enough. But they continue to call for Jesus to be crucified. Crucify him, crucify him. He called himself the son of God, Pilate. And now Pilate is squeezed again. Here you go again, Pontius Pilate, threatening our religion threatening our monotheism. You've got this guy calling himself the son of God. We do not believe in that. And you're doing it again to us, Pilate. We're going to write another letter to your boss. And this makes Pilate even more afraid. And so he brings Jesus back into questioning. And now he's really trying, we see in the Gospel of John, to try and release him. He's trying to find some way to get him off. And so there's one more political card that's going to be drawn uh, drawn by this crowd, the Friends of Caesar card. Uh, They say, if you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Back in the day, there was a uh, effectively a Caesar's club. Uh, it was called the Amici Caesoris in, in Latin. And it was like a club. You got a golden ring for being in the club. And the only way out of the club, uh, if you got out of it, if you got kicked out of it, it was you had to be exiled for life or you had to voluntarily take your own life to get out of this club. And so they're saying, Pilate, if you let this man go, you're no friend of Caesar. And so he's 
pushed, he's squeezed between a rock and a hard place. And finally, he authorizes the crucifixion of Jesus. And he's there with his basin of water, washing his hands of the thing. And he says, I'm innocent of this man's blood. It's your responsibility. And the crowd says in one of the biggest ironies in the Bible, let his blood be on us. And on our children, crucify him. What an ironic statement that is. And Pilate authorizes the execution. It never should have happened. Nobody called a point of order. Nobody said this is nonsense. And if you know the laws of the time, you have no explanation for it. It's like an invisible hand is trying to push this forward. It's like there's a third party in the background moving the thing to a conclusion so that Jesus would face this death penalty. There's no explanation. And even beyond this, the events of the trial and the execution of Jesus of Nazareth are predicted in the Old Testament. They're predicted in the scripture. You see this numerous times. The writers of the New Testament quote these passages from the Old Testament. And they tell us this is all a fulfillment of God's big plan somehow. There's about 30 of them that come to pass really rapid fire in the trial and the execution of Jesus. I'll only give you about 20 of them really quickly as we move to a close tonight. Even the shadow of the event of the crucifixion of Jesus is pictured for us way back in the book of Genesis. Way back in Genesis chapter 315, we have this rather crude conversation happening uh, where God is cursing the, the serpent and the woman. And you see this conversation happening in Genesis 3.15 after the fall of man. And God says, I will put enmity between you, the serpent, and you, the woman, and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, serpent, and you will strike his heel. Scholars call this the proto-evangelium. It's the first crude picture of the cross. Anyone who knows how to kill a snake knows the only way that you can do it is to step on its head. That's the only way. You can try and step on its tail or whatever, but you're not going to put the thing to death. You're not going to put a death blow to a serpent without stepping on its head. And yet there seems to be this event where in the same, the same event happening, you've got a death blow dealt to the serpent and yet some kind of blow dealt to the seed of the woman. And we see this as a picture, a rather crude picture of the cross. The very time that Jesus would come into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday was predicted by the prophet Daniel in Daniel chapter 9. Uh, people teach this in Bible college. They call it the prophecy of the 77s. Uh, the fact that he would enter into the city on a colt on Palm Sunday is predicted in Zechariah. The minor prophet, chapter 9 and verse 9, and uh, you'll see the, the quote from the New Testament is just below it where the author cites the passage. The general conspiracy of Pilate and Herod and the Gentiles and the chief priests and the elders is in Psalm chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. The betrayal of Jesus by Judas Iscariot is in Psalm 41, verse 9, in exchange for 30 pieces of silver that would be thrown back into the temple is 
this again in Zechariah chapter 11. That the money would be used to buy a potter's field to bury the unknown dead. In Zechariah chapter 11 again verses 12 and 13. That Jesus would be forsaken by his disciples upon the arrest. Zechariah again chapter 13 verse 7. That he would be silent before his accusers and his life would be taken. In Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 7. That he would be beaten and scourged. In Isaiah chapter 53 verse 5. That he would be smitten and spat upon. Isaiah 50 verse 6. That he would be mocked on the cross. Psalm 22 verses 7 and 8. We've looked at that before. That he would be pierced. In Psalm 22 verse 16. Zechariah chapter 12 and verse 10. That he would be executed with criminals or thieves. In Isaiah 53 and 12. That he would pray for those performing the execution. Isaiah 53 and 12, all the New Testament writers tell us all this stuff is is found in prophecy. It's all happening because God wants it to happen. That he would be hated without cause in Psalm 69 verse 4. That the soldiers performing his crucifixion, we looked at this a few weeks ago, would cast lots for his clothing. In Psalm 22:18, his cry on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In Psalm 22 verse 1, that none of his bones would be broken. In Psalm 34 verse 20, that he would be buried in a rich man's tomb. In Isaiah 53 and 9, and that's just some of them. So what is going on here? We have, uh, we have something that happened that never should have happened as if an invisible hand is somehow pushing this forward. And we see that all of these things were imaged for us, were foreshadowed, were predicted for us in pieces and parts of the Old Testament. Back to the initial questions then. What was Jesus of Nazareth found guilty of that he was sent to the death penalty What was his crime? And the answer is there was none. Nothing. In a technical standpoint, from the standpoint of Hebrew jurisprudence and law, he was technically not guilty. And yet he was put on that cross. The indictments of blasphemy, sorcery, then changed to subverting the people, not paying his taxes, high treason, all didn't hold up in the trial technically, and Pilate exonerates Jesus, but authorizes his execution. Question number two, who is ultimately responsible? Who is responsible for his death? Is it Pontius Pilate? Is it Judas Iscariot? Is it the Romans? Is it the Jewish people? You know, the Jewish people get blamed for a lot of things. Just let me tell you as a Jewish person, just just so you understand how Jewish people think. Jewish people are taught that Christians do not like them. They are taught that Christians do not like us because we put their God on the cross. And that's why they hate us. And that's why they've persecuted us for thousands of years in the name of their God. Because we must have killed their God. That's what they're taught. This is not found in the Bible, but this is what they're taught. Are they responsible? Is Caiaphas responsible? Is Annas responsible? Is Herod responsible? Who is ultimately responsible? I'll tell you who God is. God the Father is the one who pushed that thing to a conclusion. He is the third party in the back 
pushing Jesus to the cross. He is the reason why Jesus was ultimately executed. Isaiah 53 and 10. It was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. It was the Lord's will. This is why it happened. This is why it was predicted in the scripture. Because God pushed it to that point to demonstrate that he loves you. To demonstrate that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Even though we didn't know his name. Even though we lived in a way that was opposite to anything that he believed. Yet he still died for us. Very rarely will anyone die for a good person. Maybe for a righteous person, someone will die. Maybe for a child, someone will die. But to die for a person who's a wicked person, to die for a person who's a transgressor, who's a sinner, this is what Jesus did for you and for me. You say, well, I'm not a sinner. I'm not a transgressor. I I don't commit these kinds of iniquity. Well, God says in, in, in the Bible that for him, even the most righteous person, all of our righteousness, God says, it's like filthy rags. It's like dirty rags to him. It's his standard of holiness and of righteousness is so much higher than anything that mankind can muster. And this is why Jesus paid the price for us on the cross to demonstrate that he loves us, that we could have redemption, that we could have a renewed relationship with God. And this is the gospel story. And this is the reason why Jesus went to the cross. I'm going to uh, to call the band back and they're going to play uh, softly for us and we're going to have a moment here where we observe uh, the death of Jesus through what's called communion uh, at least in in uh, in our circle and uh, communion is a really beautiful uh, ceremony and I want to to read something to you that's very very old uh, I've got it on my on my cell phone here uh, which is kind of ironic uh, but this is the first reference to communion that's ever been found, and I want to read it to you. This is a letter from a fellow by the name of Pliny, and he's asking the emperor of Rome at the time, Trajan, for advice about these strange people called Christians. And listen to what he says about them. They were in the habit of meeting on a certain fixed day before it was light. And when they sang in alternate verses a hymn to Christ as to a God and bound themselves by a solemn oath not to any wicked deeds, but never to commit any fraud or theft or adultery, never to falsify their word nor deny a trust when they should be called upon to deliver it up. And after which it was their custom to separate and then reassemble to partake of food, but food of an ordinary and innocent kind. The first reference to this practice of communion, and what we have tonight are these little emblems that I want each of you to have, if you're comfortable with that. There's a basket, I think, that we can hand around. Shirley has it there, and that's just a little, really simple emblem And you've got some juice in there, and you've got a little wafer in there. It's all in one kind of portable set. 
in what you'll receive. And that's the really simple food uh, that's being referred to by Pliny there in his letter to the Emperor Trajan. And the food symbolizes something. We do not believe that the food becomes something. It doesn't become the literal body and literal blood of Jesus. These are symbols and pictures. And the, the wafer is a symbol, a picture of the body of Jesus that hung on the cross for our atonement. And the juice there is a symbol of the blood of Jesus that cleanses us from all of our sin. And there's directions in the scripture to do this and to observe this uh, regularly. And I want to, to read them to you. Uh, these are from 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Paul is writing and he says, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and whenever you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Are you thankful tonight for the price that Jesus paid? Are you thankful for the demonstration of God's love for us this Good Friday night? I'd invite you to stand with me. And I'm, gonna, I'm just going to have a word of prayer and then we're going to take the emblems together. Lord, we do thank you, even as we have looked tonight in some detail uh, at what you went through. God, at all of those, all those predictions that we see and all of those people that were involved and your sovereignty in action over hundreds and hundreds of years uh, that culminates in this strangest of all trials and brings your son to the cross. Uh, Lord, we praise you and we, we thank you. And we ask that you would forgive us, Lord, for our sin. We want to be in a right place with you. We want to have a relationship with God where we're no longer enemies separated from God, but where we can walk and talk with you and have that friendship and that fellowship that replaces fear. And Lord, uh, we pray to that end. I pray for people in this room tonight that you would reveal yourself to them in a powerful way through this idea of, of communion uh, tonight. In Jesus' name, amen.